Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Sanjeev Saraf. Dr. Saraf is the Associate Chair of the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a professor in the Gerald McGinnis Chair in Bioengineering. He's also a professor of medicine and a senior investigator at the McGee Women's Research Institute in Pittsburgh as well. Dr. Sharaf, it's a pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure as well. So I know you have a variety of interests, but perhaps I could begin by categorizing your interest related to the heart and the vascular system. Perhaps you can just give us a brief introduction to your areas of interest. Yes. All of my research efforts, if you had to find a common theme uh, among all of the efforts, I would say it would be an attempt to understand function at the global level and relate that global function to the underlying cellular and molecular processes, so-called structure-function relationships. This is the single theme that drives everything that I do. I would like to understand different proteins and different cellular processes that make up an organ. Uh, how, does, how do those processes affect the global function? This is true when I work on the heart-related function or cardiac function, and the same thing is true for vascular function. So if I could uh, try to characterize this a different way, this is a bridge that you're building between the macro and micro world in terms of these tissues and organs? That is precisely correct. The goal here is try to understand the behavior of a complex system, uh, such as uh, the heart or its chambers or the vasculature. How does the function uh, this organ is supposed to perform uh, in a physiological sense? How does it come about uh, by coordinated activities of uh, the constituents, that is, the cells, uh, the molecules, and the way all of this is put together as a three-dimensional organ? So we need to delve a little more into the details of this, but perhaps before we get to that point, can you share with our audience what this means ultimately from a a clinical perspective. If someone has this understanding of the the micro world and how it might apply to the the macro issues that clinicians ultimately deal with in patients. Sure, that's a really good question. To begin with, there is a clearly intellectual curiosity that gets satisfied as to how things work. So the work that we're trying to do, trying to relate, as you said, the macroscopic world to its microscopic underpinnings, it's quite relevant in trying to fully understand how different organ systems work and perform their physiological functions. So that is sort of intellectual curiosity, a research question. But clearly it has practical utility as well, uh, as you surmised uh, in terms of uh, its clinical applications and practical uses. So the way I think about it is two different avenues uh, this utility can be seen. One is is for diagnostic purposes. So if you see an aberration of function at the global level, it would be of great use to understand or at least speculate about what cellular, uh, molecular, or organizational features contributed to the aberrations you saw at the global level. This is useful because then you can then tailor your therapy, whatever it is, is pharmacological therapy, surgical therapy, or any other therapy, 
to treat the causes of that disease or malfunction as opposed to simply treating the symptoms. So to give you a specific example, if cardiac function is compromised in certain situations, and many cardiac diseases, cardiovascular diseases, this would be the case, you can make measurements clinically as to what those indices of compromise are, and they are very simple. And the cardiac output may be reduced, the pressures may be less, or combination thereof. So you have now multiple ways to treat this using drugs or any other treatment. But if you knew why that particular aberration is taking place, its, its molecular or cellular basis for it, you probably are in a better situation to treat that cause as opposed to simply treating the symptoms. And I think this is the main reason why we're trying to make the structure function relationships so that we are able to better diagnose the problem and perhaps come closer to the cause of the problem as opposed to simply identifying there is a problem and B, coming up with more rational therapy that hopefully gets to the cause of the problem. Well, certainly the goal of treating the problem as opposed to treating the symptoms is one that many people are striving for. As I listen to your description, it also occurs to me that we've had a number of uh, recent guests on this podcast who have talked about personalized medicine, and it seems to me if you are successful in accomplishing your objectives, it certainly would facilitate implementing personalized medicine as well. That is correct. Here the goal, although we haven't reached that stage, would be if we make measurements, appropriate measurements, measurements of mechanical function, electrical function, and perhaps other metabolic function in a given person, and keeping taking all of that data together, if we can figure out for that person the specific causes of the malfunction, then uh, the appropriate treatment would can be planned accordingly. And then, given the data were collected for that person as opposed to generic population data, this would be, in that sense, a patient-specific plan of action. Now, Dr. Sharoff, could you share with us just a few examples, perhaps, as it relates to both cardiac and vascular areas in terms of uh, where your studies are and, and uh, what the probable outcomes would be? Sure. So let me begin with the cardiac side. Here, the overall goal that I have uh, is trying to understand the mechanical function of the heart as it relates to the proteins that make up the heart and the organizational features of uh, this three-dimensional object. Now, as you know very well, there are many, many proteins that are responsible for the contraction of the heart. So within that domain, our group is specifically interested in the molecular motor itself, which is the actin-myosin system, and the regulatory proteins that control the behavior of this molecular motor, specifically the troponin-tropomyosin complex and calcium-handling proteins. So just to give you one or two examples in this uh, cardiac domain, uh, we are very much interested in the role of uh, troponin I, the protein that's very important in cardiac contraction, uh, how that controls contraction and what happens in disease condition. And here, specifically, we're looking at post-translational modification of troponin I, which is phosphorylation, how it 
controls cardiac contraction. And we have some exciting results in this area demonstrating the differential effects of protein kinase A-mediated phosphorylation of troponin I versus protein kinase C-mediated phosphorylation. To sort of continue the theme of applicants of this uh, knowledge, we are trying to figure out molecular ways of modulating this phosphorylation status so that we can change the contractile behavior of the heart muscle in a manner that we desire. And in a disease condition, especially in cardiomyopathy, there are tremendous changes in protein phosphorylation, especially troponin I. Uh, so can we modify it back towards a normal status? And if that modification leads to normalization of function, that's something that we're investigating. In this post-translational control of cardiac contraction, we're also very interested in acetylation. It's a process that we recently discovered as controlling cardiac contraction. And we are excited about this completely new approach of con uh, regulating cardiac contraction that nature has devised, which nobody had discovered far. And we are continuing to figure out its relationship, the acetylation of sarcomeric protein to the phosphorylation sarcomeric protein, such as troponin I, how they act together or in synergy in health and disease. So the cardiac world, the summary statement I would like to make is, is we're very much interested in the molecular motor and the regulatory proteins, how they control cardiac contraction, bring about the coordinated activities of a variety of proteins. On the vascular side, the theme that sort of permeates through everything that I do deals with trying to understand the role of vascular stiffness in cardiovascular function. So vessels get stiff, and they get stiff as a normal aging occurs, or they also get stiff in certain pathologies much more rapidly than normal aging would have stipulated. So the question that we are very much interested in understanding is, why do vessels get stiff under normal or pathological condition? And does this stiffening process simply a byproduct of a disease or in some way plays a role in the genesis of the disease itself. If it were the former, which is simply a byproduct, then it is of less interest. But if it is latter, that it actually predates or precedes the overt signs and symptoms of certain diseases, then it is of great importance as a diagnostic tool as well as a therapeutic target so that if we prohibit from that happening, perhaps either the disease will not come about or the progression of disease would be somewhat slowed down. So we are very much interested in trying to understand the role of vascular stiffness in various cardiovascular diseases. So just so all our listeners are on the same page, what are the clinical implications of a stiff vascular system? So it's a very good question. So there is a current dogma or the current knowledge seems to indicate that stiff vessels are bad in general. And actually there is general thought process that says that many of the diseases have their origin in this aberrant stiffness of the vasculature. Specific example being isolated systolic hypertension in elderly. So there is a general thought that this particular pathology originates because of aberrant vascular stiffness. Now, our studies actually showed that 
acutely at least, if you make vessels stiff, you do not get the pathology that resembles isolated systolic hypertension. But in a chronic sense, when the vascular stiffness is elevated under chronic conditions, you do get this pathology of isolated systolic hypertension. So there's another disease process that we are studying where we think vascular stiffness in a chronic increase in vascular stiffness is involved, which is preeclampsia, which is uh, women who get hypertension during pregnancy. And we have reasons to believe that the isolated systolic hypertension in elderly and preeclampsia, where it's pregnancy-associated hypertension, have some commonality in their origin, and vascular stiffness is at the nexus of this common pathway. And I think this is something that we're investigating currently. Is aberrant vascular stiffness involved in the genesis of preeclampsia and isolated systolic hypertension? So in each case, we have preliminary evidence that in both these pathologies, aberrant vascular stiffness predates the overt signs and symptoms of isolated systolic hypertension or preeclampsia. And we're trying to definitively show that using longitudinal studies currently. And if that is the case, then one idea would be to treat this vascular stiffness in the absence of any overt signs and symptoms of the disease early on with the hope that that disease either won't come about or it will be of a much lesser intensity. And so this would be direct uh, clinical application of this uh, knowledge base. So I realize this is a work in progress, and it certainly fits into the category of some long-term fundamental studies. But I have the sense that you envision some clinical applications emerging along along the research pathway. Can you just give us a brief status on where either the cardiac or the vascular studies are as it relates to you know, potentially helping patients? Yes. So let me give you one example from the vascular side to begin with. As I mentioned, we have, and others as well, good evidence, a very reasonably convincing evidence that vascular stiffness does play or increased vascular stiffness does play a role in the genesis and or maintenance of certain disease processes. We have reasonably convincing evidence. Then the immediate question arises as to what can we do to treat those aberrant vascular stiffness responses. So one of the molecules that we are investigating is relaxin. Just to give you a very brief and a quick update on that, is it's a pregnancy-associated hormone. The circulating levels of relaxin can only be detected in women who are pregnant, and there is absolutely no detectable levels in plasma in males, ever. But we found, by chance actually, that relaxin given exogenously to male rats they respond as robustly as as female rats, and they very potently control vascular stiffness. So because of that, we subsequently figured out that relaxin receptors, as well as mRNA, is present in the vascular wall of male and female, variety of animals and variety of vascular types. So we believe relaxin may be locally produced and locally acting. And that particular approach of controlling vascular stiffness is present in all males and females. And an aging of vasculature actually may be a loss of one of these 
either the production, local production of relaxin or the receptors or combination thereof. So really it's exciting thought process that this will be the molecular basis of vascular aging, either in the normal aging or pathologic aging. So the practical utility is that relaxin is a very small peptide and that can be used to treat then by exogenously infusing relaxin in pathology such as I talked about isolated systolic hypertension or women who are destined to develop preeclampsia. So we are investigating the use of relaxin as a molecule to treat aberrant vascular stiffness. And we have a couple of studies undergoing, animal studies of course, in which there is increased vascular stiffness and we're simultaneously treating that with relaxing to see how much normalization can we do and what benefits accrue from this particular treatment. So here's an example of using our results from our research to treat a pathology, uh, specifically in our case here, stiffness-related pathologies of vascular system. Uh, so that's one example. It's very interesting, and uh, as you pointed out, this is a laboratory study, so I guess, again, in terms of our listening audience, it's uh, probably in the order of three to five years before this would be available for a clinical trial. Is that a fair presumption? Right. So going back again to the relaxing story, so in addition to the stiffness-related utility of relaxin that I just described and we're interested. Relaxin has other properties that are very attractive for treating other cardiovascular abnormalities, including acute heart failure, because relaxin is the only, it's also a vasodilator uh, that's been known, and it's the only vasodilator that I know of also increases kidney function. Uh, there are no other vasodilators that do. The GFR or glomerular filtration rate would be higher uh, with any other vasodilator, which is a highly desirable thing in a heart failure patient. So it turns out that there is uh, a trial going on right now, already human trial, from this perspective, use of relaxin uh, in humans to treat acute heart failure. Uh, so there would be already uh, an experience of relaxin in the human thing, albeit in a different pathology. So, uh, so transition, if we show definitively that relaxin's effect on modifying stiffness are as we expect in animals, the transition to humans with this kind of a background would be not that difficult. Uh, there would be already historical precedence of using relaxin in human setting. And as I said, relaxin is a naturally occurring hormone or peptide, so its side effects are not going to be any significant at all. So I think we're hopeful that with this current human experience that is in, uh, the trials are underway, uh, we will be in a better position to use it for different pathologies. Most interesting and most promising, I might add. So Dr. Sharoff, uh, you've uh, described this uh, very promising and exciting research I know you have interest in this whole area of regenerative medicine, but that isn't your exclusive uh, focus. Uh, could you share a few comments with us about how your studies relate to, contrast with, some of the other initiatives in regenerative medicine? Sure. Uh, I guess so from whatever we've talked about so far, you get the feeling or, or that my main research interest is in characterizing function and relating 
the global function to the underlying cellular molecular processes. So clearly the question arises as to how does this connect to regenerative medicine or tissue engineering. The connection that I have established using our research effort with my colleagues here and elsewhere is trying to use the lessons learned from the structure-function relationship efforts and developmental biology to advise our colleagues as to how best to approach a tissue engineering project or regeneration-related efforts. So give, let me give you specific examples. I am collaborating with colleagues from Children's Hospital here, uh, Dr. Keller and T Dr. Tabita, uh, trying to optimize tissue-engineered cardiac constructs for therapy, ultimately for therapeutic purposes, of course. So they are the people, uh, Dr. Keller and Dr. Tabita, who produce these tissue-engineered construct. And our laboratory contributes our knowledge of structure-function relationships to evaluate the functional behavior of these constructs. But more importantly, try and understand where the deficits are in terms of function that can be directly measured compared to what nature has done in terms of natural myocardium that exists. But with our knowledge of structure function, we are perhaps in a better position to identify the deficits and the reasons for those deficits. So if we identify those, perhaps then we go back to laboratory and try and, and coax these constructs to move in a direction so that those deficits are, are, are removed. Uh, one specific example of this, this kind of a function, structure function based approach of optimizing the construct would be uh, recently we found that the behavior of the cardiac constructs that Dr. Keller and Dr. Tabita were making uh, was not as good as what nature had done. Obviously, the deficits in function were of the order of a third or a fourth of what natural myocardium was producing. And specifically identified uh, a deficit in, in, in one of the suborgan system, which is sarcoplasmic reticulum, that their constructs did not have the development of sarcoplasmic reticulum as much as a normal myocardium of the comparable age would be. And looking at uh, how the sarcoplasmic reticulum or calcium handling process related to sarcoplasmic reticulum develops, uh, we came up with an idea of stimulating uh, those cardiac constructs, not only with the mechanical stretch and electrical stimulation that most of the investigators in this area are using, but also stimulating with beta adrenergic stimulation that is known in the developmental stages to bring about the development of SR system and associated calcium handling proteins. And we are trying to fit now, currently the studies are underway, to figure out if this additional stimulation uh, would help uh, remove that at least one component of the deficits that we identified, which is the SR system. So this is one example of how our expertise, which is primarily in the structure-function relationship of cardiac muscle, uh, helps those who are in the tissue engineering or regenerative medicine area to optimize the pieces that are trying to develop. Very interesting, and uh, while this is a, a good description of your specific studies, it also reaffirms what we routinely hear in these discussions, and that is that 
Studies of this nature are truly multidisciplinary and team-based that provides the most optimal results or the most rapid progress ultimately for clinical use. And that, that is absolutely true. I think uh, none of this, uh, these efforts would be possible with people from appropriate backgrounds getting involved. So in my particular case, this is absolutely true. My cardiac-related studies would, can never be performed uh, without participation of the molecular biologist on one end and the clinical applications, the cardiologist on the other end, where we can make measurements at the human level or in the clinic. And so I sit somewhere in between. I primarily would consider myself as physiologist, interested in function primarily. So you can see how molecular biologist, physiologist, biophysics, why physicists and clinical people have to come together to try and understand uh, the structure-function relationships of the heart. And the same thing is true for the vascular side as well. Now, Dr. Shroff, I know that you have a team that does these work in, in collaboration with you under your leadership, and I also know that you have a leadership role in the Department of Bioengineering. Perhaps you'd like to say a few words about your research team and your general responsibilities and interest in development of bioengineers. Certainly. Clearly, the research efforts constitute a major portion of my effort, and this is something that excites me every day, trying to figure out answers to research questions. And as we discussed, this is a group effort with colleagues with different expertise being involved, but as well as graduate students. And so... Training graduate students and training students in general also makes up a major portion of my effort, along with the research efforts. And so I'm very excited in trying out very novel educational methods uh, to train these graduate students, undergraduate students, and, and get them excited about research and participate in research effort. So in terms of education, which is an important component of, of our responsibility as, as a professor in bioengineering, uh, I'm very excited about developing novel uh, educational tools. And in this domain, uh, we, we've been again lucky to collaborate with uh, many other people to come up with new educational tools uh, for bioengineering education. We call these use of virtual experimentation in uh, education. Uh, specifically, what we have done here is to develop mathematical models uh, of uh, many biological systems, specifically the cardiovascular system, the pulmonary gas exchange, pulmonary mechanics system, as well as renal uh, electrolyte balance and, and CNS control. All of this is mathematically modeled so that uh, students can do virtual experiments in a computer as opposed to working with an animal and learn the physiology and the biology uh, using this mathematical model. These models are also very useful in design purposes so that if somebody is designing engineered system to be used in a, uh, along with a biological system. An example would be, let's say, left ventricular assist device, uh, and somebody's trying to design those. And before you actually implement those devices and test them in the animals, uh, it would be wonderful to try this with modeled 
biological systems before so that you can optimize before an actual first animal experiment is done. And so these biological models offer a platform with which to test your man-made device in a simulation sense and optimize it as best as you can before actual animal experiments are done. So the theme of all the educational efforts that we have, our group has done so far, the basic motivation is to get students involved uh, in their own education and have them learn by actively participating as opposed to simply listening to lectures and, and virtual experimentation using mathematical models embedded in their didactic learning allows you to do that, and this is an important component of teaching here at University of Pittsburgh. It sounds like a very uh, enriching approach, and I would like to comment that I know that the Carnegie Science Center uh, not so long ago recognized you as the outstanding university educator of the year for these innovative and very promising techniques. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was that was really a great honor. But again, it goes back to your original comment that you made, which is either research or education, it's a group effort. And, and you really need people with different expertise come together and develop something that is truly innovative. And that is true for research, and it is absolutely true for the educational efforts we had, because the richness of our tools that we have developed span cardiac or cardiology-related efforts, but also pulmonology, nephrology, the CNS control, and there is no way I can claim that I have knowledge of all of these subsystems, and certainly the colleagues from those with expertise in those areas had to come together. So in that sense, this honor is actually for everybody who was involved in this effort. Dr. Sharoff, thank you for visiting with us today and uh, sharing your interest and accomplishments in both research as well as education. Uh, As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I would also like to remind our listeners that that we cannot diagnose uh, medical problems via the Internet. As we conclude, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who sponsors these podcasts, and I look forward to joining you in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you. Thank you.